Well, people mistakenly refer to this as a parable sometimes. It's not a parable. It's in Luke 17. And it is an account. It's a real life story. It's something that happened in a real place at a real point in history. From Luke 17, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. And you might be thinking, well, what are the chances of that? Ten men who all happened to have leprosy. Well, yeah, because they lived in colonies. They were outcasts, so they had to find each other. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. So uh, according to the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 13, if somebody had an infectious skin disease, they had to be removed from everybody else. And then when they thought they were healed, they would go report to the priest and then they would look them over and tell them if it was okay. And this is just another example here of Jesus living kind of in obedience to the law, um, at least with his um, the command that he gave to these men. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? From beginning to end, the Bible stresses the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving. Jesus' question, where are the other nine, suggests that God was not pleased with ingratitude. And I wonder if this isn't also kind of a subtle indication here that only a small minority of people are appropriately grateful to God for the grace in their lives. Um, unless ingratitude is like one of the symptoms of leprosy, but I don't think it is. Um, I just think that's, that's probably generally true, that only a small percentage of people are appropriately grateful to God. So it's Thanksgiving Sunday today, the Sunday leading up to Thanksgiving, and we're going to give this subject attention, not because, well, this is what everybody else is talking about today, but because we want to be good disciples of Jesus Christ and gratitude and thanksgiving are essential to Christian discipleship. And so we're going to be uh, talking about that. Um, And so, kids, I wanted you to be here for Luke chapter 17, but I'm going to now dismiss um, ages four through fourth grade. So uh, if if your parents want you to participate, and I hope you do, um, I'm going to let you go ahead and file out at this time. Wave to us, Mrs. Graber. All right. And kids, I want you to be cooperative. Okay, I want you to pay attention and really um, behave while you are with with Mrs. Graber. And then again, parents, they will be singing on December 18th. And so good time to invite grandparents or aunts and uncles uh, that morning if they're able to make it. Um, Again, that's December 18th. And then we'll be practicing every week leading up to that time. So we're going to look at what the Bible says on the subject of Thanksgiving. And uh, first I want to just zoom out. Let's, let's just think about the culture that we're living in for a little bit. It's not all bad. Okay, sometimes we think it's all bad. It's not all bad. Uh, for secular unbelievers, the secular world... Giving thanks is thought to be polite, right? Most people still agree that politeness is uh, something that should be valued in society. Um, so it's generally thought that if you're you know, walking into the store and somebody holds the door open for you as you walk through, you should say thank you, right? Doesn't mean everybody does it, but it is considered common courtesy even in our culture. I hope we can hang on to that. I think it was Francis Schaeffer, the Christian philosopher, who, um, in speaking of the lingering cultural effects, the positive effects 
that kind of hang around in a society after that society has discarded Christianity, moved on and moved away from Christianity. He described that as sort of an inertia. Um, And so uh, if you've taken Mr. Andrews physics class, maybe you covered this. Do you talk about inertia ever? Absolutely. Inertia is the, the, if you're not familiar with it, it's like if you've got an object and there's a force that's propelling this object in a direction. After you remove the force, the object continues to move. That's inertia, right? So if you're blowing on a ping pong ball, right, and you inhale, it's not like the ping pong ball stops. It keeps going. All right. And I think inertia is what explains a lot of the good things that exist in our culture now that we are really, by all measures, post-Christian. The things that are still around that we say this is good, uh, the things that still circulate in, in the society, I think that's inertia. And, and I think that is um, one of the, the, the things that we appreciate about Thanksgiving. We don't even know why we appreciate it anymore, but, it, but it's a good thing. And I think we have thank, uh, Christianity to thank for that. So we, we have this holiday that we call Thanksgiving. But where does the giver of all these good things come into play? I mean, right, you see the marketing. You see the, the, the advertisements and the sales and the commercials. Do they talk about God? They say Thanksgiving, Right. I think it's comparable to this. Imagine a large company founded by a Christian man sets aside a day off each June, and they call it service day. Maybe it's the 1980s, okay? The Human Resources Department organizes opportunities for employees to reach out to their community, doing acts of service, maybe visiting nursing homes and cleaning up litter, whatever it might be. And everybody in the company is expected to participate. And so they all work all day long, service day, 5 o'clock. They wrap it up. They have a picnic. They get together and they share their stories. But the founder of the company eventually retires and his son takes over. And several years later, service day is still an annual tradition. They get the day off, but it's not an organized thing anymore. It's just kind of they just tell people, do something nice for your neighbor on service day. Within a few years, no one's even serving anymore, except for maybe Gladys, who's been with the company for 40 years, and she remembers when they started service day. Nobody else does. It's just a day to get off and party, and, and, and nobody even remembers why they call it service day anymore. I think that's where we are with Thanksgiving, maybe some other holidays, um, maybe Independence Day. Ask somebody, like interview people, why do they call it Independence Day? Well, I had no idea. Veterans Day, right? I celebrated that last week. These are merely days off. It's a holiday. It's a day to eat food, be together with family. Think of how strange that is. It's almost ironic, right? The very word Thanksgiving implies that there's someone to thank, right? I once watched a video clip of people, they were getting asked about Thanksgiving, and I just have a vague memory of this, but I, I remember people talking about how important it is to be thankful, and, but then as the, the video kind of continued on, it, it, it was obvious that they had no concept that they were actually thanking a person. It was just more like, I feel fortunate to, to have a family, and I feel fortunate to live in this country, but no concept that that actually came to them through a God who provided for them. It's more like, you know, a feeling lucky day or, um, you know, I'm sure glad I wasn't born in Calcutta day. Um, I think that's where we are. So now what do we do with that? You know, if, if the culture is, is largely detached from the historical significance of Thanksgiving, um, what, what do we do? Well, I, I suggest that as we try to penetrate the culture, we're always looking for, for things that we have in common, things that we can. Um, so your, the, your friends at work are they're getting Thursday off. They're probably going to meet with family. So maybe you can ask them a non-threatening question like, hey, what's what does your family do for Thanksgiving? You, you know, do you guys get together? Yeah, yeah, we get together. Is there anything more than that? You guys um, go beyond just eating and football? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean? 
Well, Thanksgiving originally was a day set aside to acknowledge that everything we have comes from God and to thank him for that. Is, is that a, an element in your family's you know, tradition Do you, as you celebrate Thanksgiving? Does that come into play? You can kind of have those conversations. Maybe that's something we ought to pray about this week and, and look for those, those opportunities. And, and Phil mentioned, too, even in, in our homes, a lot of us, you know, our, our family members are not believers. Maybe that can be something that um, we can look for opportunities this Thanksgiving. Well, this morning, we're going to look at some scriptures that relate to Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to consider two commands from God. And we're going to identify two reasons that God gave us these commands. And then uh, finally, we're going to discuss how we can obey these commands with special emphasis on how we help our children become more grateful. And um, before we do that, I want to pray. Pray for me and pray for you. Father, we thank you that you love us so much, that you sent Christ for us. We thank you that you sent him to pay the penalty for our sin, to forgive our sins and reconcile us to yourself through the cross. We thank you, God, that you sent your spirit to sanctify us through the word. And this morning, God, as we consider what your word says, please, Lord, help us to be humble and to have open hearts. God, as the culture moves rapidly away from you and away from your truth, may we be a people who are committed to the truth. May we be humble before you and before your word and with one another, always eager uh, to ask the question, how can we honor you more with our lives? And so this morning, please, God, be at work in me, be at work in all of us for your glory. Amen. There's an important distinction that we should make between the act of giving thanks and gratefulness as the posture of one's heart before God. Both of these are important, but they are two different things. One is an action. The other is an attitude. Let's talk about the first, giving thanks. We would agree with the culture, obviously, that that giving thanks is polite. But for us, it's more than polite. It's obligatory. It's actually a command. Um, For the Christian, it's always been that way. There was always this expectation for God's people, even back up to Genesis. I think part of the story in Genesis chapter 4 is that Abel had a grateful heart before the Lord, and Cain did not. And God's word makes it clear that he expected more of Cain. Leviticus chapter 7, you have this idea of thank offerings before the Lord. It was commanded. It was expected. The psalmist wrote, Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Well, what about the new covenant, right? God's people now, are we still expected to give thanks? If anything, we are compelled all the more for having received the fullness of God's grace in in Christ. And so Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Ephesians 5, there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, but rather thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I want to know God's will for my life. What's God's will for my life? Well, let's start with this. Give thanks in all circumstances. And these are just a few of the passages that command us to give thanks. And probably nobody is surprised to, to hear that giving thanks to God is a command. But it might surprise some people to hear that gratefulness, the the posture of one's heart, is also a command. For example, Colossians 3, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs 
with gratitude in your hearts to God. So if if I do these things, but I'm not grateful in my heart, I'm not being obedient. I am commanded to have a grateful heart. And somebody might object and say, well, that's not fair. You're, I can understand if God's commanding me to give thanks, but you, he can't command us to, to have a certain attitude, to have certain feelings, to, 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 to feel certain emotions. We can't control that. The emotions just kind of come into us and settle on us. and We don't know why, right? Unfortunately, it's very common for people, even Christians, to believe that we are at the mercy of our feelings. But the scriptures actually command that we are to take charge of our emotions, that we are to work to change them when they are wrong. And there are lots of commands telling us to put away such things as hatred and anxiety and to put on such things as joy and contentment. First Thessalonians 5.16, be joyful always. Love one another deeply from the heart, Peter writes. James says everyone should be slow to become angry. So this false idea that the Christian cannot control his emotions, that we're just driven around by whatever we're we're feeling at the time, that's actually something that the devil will use against us. If we could not control our emotions, then God would not command us to. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's like a light switch, okay? Like just instantly stop feeling the things that you shouldn't feel and start feeling the things that you should feel. That's, I I can see, it sure doesn't work that way with me, okay? Um, But it's kind of back to this, we've talked about this before with our desires, with our beliefs. I can't instantly believe something to be true if I don't, you know, I want you to believe right now that, whatever, Trump is president. <laughs> I might want to believe that, but, but I don't. Okay. So we, we can't, we can't, we don't have direct control over certain things like our beliefs and our desires and our, our emotions. All right. But we have indirect control over them. And what I mean by that is we can make choices to do the things that will help us to, to want the right things. And to believe the right things. If, if I don't believe the right things, I go to the word so that I will. And if I don't feel the right things, what do I do? If I'm not thankful, if I'm not grateful, what do I do? I hope that we can, at least for now, agree that what God wants from us is not just actions that aren't heartfelt, Right? Anyone who's read the Sermon on the Mount knows that. God is not just uh, concerned with with these outward actions. He wants grateful hearts. And if we don't have them, it's actually sinful. So I looked at two obligations, an action and an attitude. The action is giving thanks. The attitude is gratitude in our hearts toward God. Let's consider their relationship because that will help us answer the question of what we can do when we find that it's hard to be grateful. When we find that we're apathetic, we've got all these blessings that God has showered down on us and somehow we don't feel grateful. Somehow we are apathetic about it. Well, if we're going to talk about that relationship, it seems obvious enough, right, that 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 if I'm grateful in my heart, if I actually have gratitude that it's going to produce action, right? I think we all know that. What's inside works its way out. Jesus expressed that as a principle, you know, from out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So whatever's inside will eventually make its way out. Um, if you blow up and, and you lose your temper at work and you start screaming at somebody, you're really not allowed to go back later and say, well, that just wasn't me. <laughs> no, we like to say that, but the reality is that was you. That was something inside of you that came out. Same thing with gratitude. We, we know it works that way. If I realize that someone has done something nice for me, whether it's God or someone else, I probably won't have to be reminded to, to tell them thanks. OK, that'll come naturally. The attitude of the heart will produce the action. But can the action produce the attitude? Can making a choice to do the right thing, not because we feel like it, but because we realize that it is right, can that actually change the attitude? 
And what do we do when the feelings aren't there, when we don't feel grateful? Does the Bible tell us that before we do the right thing, that we should wait until we feel the right thing and, and that we wait till we desire the right thing or wait till we believe the right thing? Is that what the Bible says? Or does it say that even if I don't feel like forgiving someone, that I am to release the debt? Does the Bible say that even if I don't feel like praying for my enemy, that I should pray for him anyway and ask God to bless him? I pray for my enemies, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, it rarely starts with a feeling. It almost always starts with a, you told me to do this, Lord. Are husbands not commanded to love their wives and lay down their lives for them? Is that only when they are, at the moment, feeling deep emotions of love? Or is that a command that is given to us because we don't feel those emotions all the time? Right? Same, same thing with wives. A lot of times wives struggle with feeling like they, they're not respecting their husbands. What are they supposed to do? Wait till they, they do respect their husbands in order to feel, or in order to, to, to actually give them respect? No. You respect them even if you don't feel that emotion. In all these cases, God honors obedience. In my experience, and this is just my experience, maybe yours is similar, choosing to arrest my sinful emotions, and I have them, choosing not to be driven by my emotions has resulted in the weakening of those sinful emotions. And, and the gradual replacement of them with the right feelings. That's what God does in me. And I think it works the same way with thanksgiving and gratitude. When I don't feel thankful for the undeserved blessings that God pours out on my life, and I know they're there. If my emotional state is apathetic, and sometimes it is, what should I do? If I'm temporarily blinded, if I'm you know, feeling envy or entitlement or self-pity or if it's idolatry, whatever it happens to be, discontentment, giving thanks to God, saying true things about him and, and his grace that has caused those feelings in me to, to stir up and to, to, to begin to produce that, that feeling of gratefulness. And I want to obey that command to have a grateful heart. I think you do, too. It's when we intentionally put ourselves in contact with these truths, folks, that God changes our attitudes. And so I prayer, pray a prayer of thanks, even when I don't feel like thanking God, which brings me to this. I'm not suggesting that you say things to God in a prayer like that about your emotions. You don't need to say anything about your emotions. You don't need to say, oh, God, my heart is so full. I'm so grateful to you. I'm so thankful to you. No, don't say what isn't true. Say what is true. Acknowledge who God is. List the things that he has done for you and for others. Praise him. Cite the specific ways that he has loved you and poured his grace out on your life. It's because of these truths that we choose to give him thanks. This is what the psalmist says. Psalm 7. I will give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because I feel like it. Because of his righteousness. That doesn't depend on my emotions. His righteousness is always there. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Why? For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. We give him thanks because of what he has done and who he is. No wonder Paul can tell us in First Thessalonians 5. In all circumstances, give thanks. Because what he's done, what he's already done for us, what he's done for his people, what he's done through Christ on the cross, our circumstances don't change any of that. Those things are independent. So there's always a reason to give thanks to God. So how do you pray then? If you don't feel gratitude, what, what would a prayer like that sound like? Maybe it would sound like this. Father, I confess that I am not appropriately grateful. 
I confess that somehow in spite of all that you've done for me, I'm, I'm ungrateful and I'm apathetic. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like those nine lepers. I want to be like the one who came back. Forgive me. And I do thank you, God. I thank you for the relationships in my, my life. I thank you for feeding me. I thank you for taking care of me. I thank you for giving me health. I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the forgiveness of sins. I thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with me. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the Word. And these are only a few of the things you've done for me, God. Thank you. I don't deserve anything. Lord, please help me to be grateful from the heart. When I pray a prayer like that, it actually brings conviction on me. I actually feel more grateful when I'm done praying it. So we see that God not only commands us to give thanks, but he also commands us to have grateful hearts. And maybe you're wondering why. Why does God command us to have grateful hearts? I think that's an okay question to ask. Is it because God is insecure? Right? Is that why he wants us to be grateful? Is it an ego thing? You ever know somebody? It's like if they do something, they want recognition. Is that, is that God? Is that why he tells us to be grateful? Does it just bother him that much to be underappreciated? Is he just that vulnerable and touchy? I suggest that it has a lot more to do with us and what God knows is good for us. Years ago when I was a youth pastor in Fort Wayne, I remember having a conversation with Kay about the lack of appreciation that I saw in a lot of our teens. Uh, most of them, I think it would be safe to say. I had a habit of uh, taking these kids out to lunch, and I'd take the guys out to lunch, and um, I'm just, just wanting to get to know them better and encourage them, but I would pay for their, their lunch. And it was rare that they would say thanks. And... I mean, I didn't lose too much sleep over that. I, I guess a 15-year-old kid is probably just used to having his food paid for by somebody, right? So, But it did bother me. And unless I'm fooling myself, it, you know, as I was processing this, why does this bother me so much that it's, that it's so rare that a young person would say, hey, thanks for... One of them ordered a steak one time. I took him to Arby's. He ordered a steak. Or not Arby's, um, Azar's. I might have got a thanks for that one. Um, but, I, but it just bothered me. And I think the reason it bothered me is because I understood that this isn't good for them. It's not good for someone to be ungrateful. That's not how you thrive. In fact, if we're ungrateful, we won't thrive. There were some exceptions, thankfully. Among them were two brothers each time I took them out, they thanked me sincerely. And then um, almost invariably, I would get a letter the next week in the mail, handwritten, not just, hey, thanks for taking me to lunch, but like a really well thought out letter, a couple paragraphs, uh, a lot of times not just thanking me for taking them out to lunch, but thanking me for my ministry. And um, that was always very nice. Today, one of them is the senior communications director for a United States senator. The other is a White House news correspondent who throws tough questions at the President of the United States. And if you follow politics, you've probably seen him on TV. My point is this. Included in the set of qualities that are important for us in life, gratitude and appreciation find their place. And God knows this better than any of us. I think the reason he commands us to be grateful is because he knows that we need it. Not just in our relationship with him, but in our relationship with one another. We miss out on quality relationships if we're not grateful. And we miss out on opportunities. Certainly because of good parenting, these two kids were developing a lot of other essential qualities. So I don't want to say it just all boils down to thankfulness. But, but that was in the package. 
Because God wants us to flourish. Hear me. Because God wants us to flourish, he commands us to be grateful. Now, if you aren't convinced that ingratitude is harmful, there's a story in 1 Samuel 25, a story about Nabal, the fool. His name actually meant fool. And his wise wife, Abigail. And their encounter with David when David was on the run from Saul. Maybe you remember the story. But even in his hunger, even in his distress, David refused to help himself to Nabal's flocks. He he could have. But instead, David protected Nabal's flocks and guarded them. And he guarded his servants. So David was very good to Nabal. But Nabal was not grateful for this. He had no appreciation for David and what David had done. And when the opportunity came up for uh, Nabal to bless David, he passed callously. And because of this, Nabal came to ruin. The same thing occurred to Israel on a larger scale, as Hosea the prophet recounts. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the desert, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. You see, they received God's blessings, but they were not grateful for them. Instead, they became proud as though they deserved his blessings This caused them to forget God, and we know what happened next. Just like Nabal, they came to ruin. Why does God desire us and command us to be grateful? It's because he loves us. He knows what's good for us. It's necessary to our flourishing. Another reason that I believe that God commands gratitude is that it is a starting point for serving him. This is where it all begins. We sang that this morning, uh, that it's through grace by faith, right? Christianity is not a works religion, okay? And so the Bible teaches that God's favor rests not on those who work hard to earn his favor, but on those who receive it by faith. Well, now what? How do you get people to do stuff then? If you're not telling them work, 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 do this, do this, do this, if you want favor, then how do you get service out of God's people? It's this. It's simply this. Gratitude. Thankfulness to God for what he has done for us in Christ. You don't have that, then you're not going to serve. At least you certainly won't serve for the right reasons. Gratitude is the starting point for serving God, and it is the motivation for persevering in good works. So here's where we've been so far. For the Christian, thanksgiving and gratitude... They're more than being polite. It's part of our Christian discipleship. It's a duty. It's a command. And if we neglect it, it's disobedient. And we can obey. We can obey the command not just to give thanks with our lips, to to do the outward thing, but we can obey the command to have grateful hearts. It takes a little more work, but we can do that. Help from God. We don't merely follow our emotions. If we don't feel grateful, We give thanks, nevertheless, for who God is and what he's done for us. And finally, we observe that this command to give thanks and to be grateful is given to us by God because he loves us, because he wants what is best for us, and because he wants us to enjoy the fruit of serving him. And serving starts with thanksgiving. All right, I want to transition now and and just um, look at four specific ways that we can help our children to become more grateful. Parents, if you're saying, man, it seems like our kids are not very grateful. I want to maybe give you some thoughts here, but I, I want to say this too with a caveat that it's not just kids. This applies really to all of us. I mean, I, when I think of myself, uh, I have a tendency to be more like the nine than, than the one leper who came back. So some of this, I think maybe you can apply to yourself. First thing to watch out for in our children and in ourselves is an entitlement mentality. This notion that I deserve it, 
We need to get this through our heads. None of us deserves anything. Oh, but I'm, I'm sure I deserve, like, free health care. I, I heard that on the radio. No, <laughs> you don't deserve health care. You don't deserve a job. You don't deserve to exist. Okay, so if you don't deserve to exist, you don't deserve anything that's associated with your existence. Okay, this entitlement mentality that I have it coming to me. God owes it to me. This is a myth and it strangles gratitude. These two things are mutually exclusive. Consider two employees. Both get their paychecks on a Friday. One receives it from his boss and walks away without saying a thing. The other says thank you, and he means it from the heart. What's the difference? The first one is thinking, well, I worked for this. Yeah, I don't have to say thank you. He got what he got, and I get the reward. And and you don't say thanks for something that is owed to you. Pity such a person as this. The second person is thinking, you know, my boss could have hired somebody else. It's not like I was born with some right to this job or right to make money. And and I've kind of screwed up on the job several times. He could have fired me. He didn't. He's been patient with me. I am very blessed. I'm very blessed. Totally different perspectives. One starts with entitlement. It just shudders any possibility of, of thankfulness. The other recognizes the truth that we deserve nothing. Kay and I have a friend whose husband up and left her, left the kids, and, um, and left God. And she told us that she began to become especially concerned about his spiritual condition a while back when she was talking about, you know, we're just so blessed. We're blessed to have this house. God has, has been so good to us. And, and she said he replied angrily, no, we worked for this. That's an entitlement mentality, and it's a killer. Do your children think... I'm entitled to play sports. I'm entitled to hang out with my friends. I'm entitled to have an iPad or an iPod or whatever, iPhone. I deserve to sleep in on a Saturday. I have it coming. If so, you need to address this. Because an entitlement mentality in your children is spiritually dangerous. It will strangle the gratitude that they need. Well, how do you know if they are entitled in their hearts? What are some of the signs? Well, maybe obviously complaining. <laughs> complaining and whining, right? Complaining reveals discontentment. Discontentment springs from pride. Watch out for complaining. Sometimes parents selfishly address complaining. And I know I have before. We, we, we confront complaining the wrong way because we confront it for the wrong reasons. We confront it because we're tired of hearing it. It gets on our nerves. That's not the thing that should bother us about complaining. What should bother us about complaining and whining is that here's this child that God has put into my spiritual care and their heart is, is not grateful. And and they've got this entitlement viewpoint. That's what should really bother us. That's what should send us to our knees. Another indicator, fighting and bickering with their siblings. James 4 will diagnose that for you if you want to look that up. Finally, grumpiness. Just when they don't get their way, being grouchy. This points to a lack of joy, which also stems from discontentment. Complaining, whining, grumpiness, discontentment. Um, And I want to say a few words about discontentment. And bear with me here. Hebrews 13, we get the command to be content with what we have. That's a command for you and me. It's a command for our children. And I think, if you'll permit me to share my opinions, this is not thus saith the Lord. But I think that one of the biggest obstacles to contentment for our kids and for us 
is the consumption of social media. Most kids, and probably a lot of adults, just simply do not have the maturity to take in social media in a godly way and participate in a godly way. They just can't process it. Seeing what other people have, seeing where other people go, seeing what other people get to do, seeing how happy everybody else is, what they're doing, who they're friends with. That's a photoshopped world, by the way. You know what I mean by that? It's fake. <laughs> and they don't have, they don't have the, a way to process that. They just see it. And they don't say, there's no way that that person is that happy all the time. They say, look at what they have. Look at how happy it makes them. And it breeds discontentment in them. And a lot of big people, too. It's just a big reminder to them of everything they don't have, every place they can't go, everyone they're not friends with, how happy they're, they're not based on these celebrities that they follow that look really happy. And the only way for me to get that is to get what they have. Social media is spiritual poison for many people. It breeds discontentment and idolatry and envy. It pushes gratitude right out of their hearts. And I'm going to plead with parents. Hear me out. This is my opinion. You don't have to take it. I don't have a Bible verse. But I do have some experience. If your kids are not really grateful in their hearts right now, why would you give them social media? It's going to make the problem worse. For me, like in my thinking, I can't imagine high school kids are going to be like, shut up. <laughs> but I cannot imagine a high school kid who is mature enough to have social media. I'm sorry. Now, maybe there are some. Your kid might be the exception, and if you choose to do that, that's between you and God, okay? I would plead with you, though. Your kids do not need social media. They need some things. Social media is not one of them. I think it's going to make them discontent. And if you see signs already of discontentment, complaining, whining, arguing, bickering, that kind of thing, it's just going to make it worse. It's my opinion, and I share it because I love you. I think there are very, very few people, kids and adults, for whom social media has enriched their walk with Jesus Christ. So we talked about how to spot an entitlement attitude in ourselves and in our kids. What should we do if we find it? Sometimes in order to teach our children that they are not entitled to certain things, we have to do more than remind them with our words. Entitlement mentality, which really springs from pride in our hearts, is sometimes so ingrained in us and our kids that the, 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 the way to, to address it really is to deprive them of the thing that they think they're entitled to. Okay? So if you have a six-year-old, for example, who, you know, they're sitting at the table and they're complaining about the food, all right, what do you do about that? Well, the, the, the issue is that they think they're entitled to special treatment, okay? I don't like this. Everybody else can eat it. I want special treatment. Or I'm entitled to mom and dad making me something, giving me something that I like, that I deserve. What do you do? Here's what I think you do. I think you say, no problem, Junior. You don't have to eat that. You take the plate away from them, and you go and grab an empty plate, and you put it in front of them. And they can look at the empty plate. The world says, that's hatred. And I say, no, that's love. Let that child go hungry for a night. I promise you, they won't die. You're attending to something they need more than physical food, which is a grateful heart. And I know from experience, sometimes the best way to become grateful for something is to be separated for it for a while. Works that way for me with food, for sure. 
day of fasting will do that for me. So the first thing I would say to you to help your child grow in gratitude is to identify and confront entitlement thinking. The next three are going to go much faster. We're wrapping up here. The second thing is to set an example of gratitude in your homes. Dads and moms, um, Kay and I were, a, a, I think, a good team because if, if she made a nice meal and the kids forgot to say thank you, like I would remind them, you guys should thank your mom. She went to a lot of work for you, and she would sometimes tell the kids to thank me for being so wonderful. Um, but no, the kids should see you thank each other, thank other people, and most importantly, thank God daily. And not canned prayers, heartfelt expressions to God as you encounter his grace. Sometimes in our home, in the evening, you know, we'll pray after Bible study. And there'll be times where we just say, let's just, all we're going to do tonight is thank God. Let's all think of something to thank God for. Do this in your homes. Parents, set the example. And, and I want to say this, not just in the home. You know that Jesus set the example of giving thanks to God publicly. Out in public. Each time he ate in public, he did this. And, and he thanked God for the food. He didn't ask God to bless the food to the nourishment of their bodies. Okay, I know some of you have heard this, but listen, um, that is what food already is. It is nourishment to our bodies. You don't have to. There are not pagans who are out there dying of malnutrition because they never ask God to bless the food. It blessed them because that's what food is. You can say that if you want. Fine. But thank him. Thank him for the food. Jesus did this. Jesus did it in private settings and he did it in public settings. It's his example for us. We're his disciples. God forbid that we should ever go out to eat in a public place and not thank him. Well, I don't know. What if the waitress comes to take our order? She can wait. She can stand there. In fact, it'll be good for her to hear that. Same with the people next, at the next table. And I'm not suggesting that you do a big pharisaical thing and stand up and get the attention of the whole restaurant. Okay, no, just... Just like you would at home. Thank him. I think of what Jesus says. Anyone who's ashamed of me, uh, in my words, in this generation, I'll be ashamed of him before my Father in heaven. God forbid that, that his people would go out in the public, receive his blessings, and not thank him for it. Okay? I'm not monitoring you. I don't have cameras in the restaurants. Okay? I'm just saying, if you don't do this, start. It's important. People might think you're weird. Not a problem. You are weird. All right? In this, in this culture, you are. So just embrace it. Number three, expose your children to those who are less fortunate than they are. If you want your kids to be grateful, uh, what we do, praying for the persecuted church, I think helps. And maybe you want to take that a step further in your home. Maybe you want to give them an assignment. Here's, here's an article on on the, the Central African Republic that we're praying for this month. I want you to read this article. And, and, um, and, and tonight, as a family, we're going to pray. And I want you to lead that prayer time or tell us maybe a few things that they need. Expose them to people that, you know, if you're in a bubble, if you're in America and you, you've never missed a meal, you've never been persecuted, you've never gotten malaria, You've never been chased down, had your hut burned down by Muslims. If, if you've never had that, it's, it's easy to get spoiled. I'm, I'm speaking about myself. Sometimes when I read about the trials of other people, brothers and sisters particularly, uh, first I feel like a heel, and then secondly, it, it makes me more grateful. All right, number four, talk to your children every day, every day. About God's blessings. Every day about God's grace in your life. 
talk to your children about his goodness every day. We said a moment ago that parents need to set the example of gratitude, giving thanks in the home so that kids will adopt that as a habit for themselves. So now let's let's fill their minds with so many things that they just can't forget God's goodness. Talk about his goodness as a family every day. Heaven forbid that in Christian homes of all places, the children would forget God and forget his many blessings. Moses warned against the same thing. Deuteronomy 6, he warned against this. He said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And sadly, they did just that. They forgot the God who gave them all those blessings. They might have done their thank offerings, but they didn't have gratitude in their hearts. And it led to their destruction. Ingratitude is spiritually deadly. May we not repeat their mistake. When our hearts are genuinely grateful to God, when they really are, We flourish spiritually. We treat others better. We enjoy richer relationships. We serve God with joy. We live with contentment. And we bring glory to God. And our lives point to the gospel of Jesus. May God help us. May God help our children. I hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving this week. I hope you have a wonderful time with your family celebrating God's goodness.